0: Welcome back to Gray Matters, the podcast of the C. and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Jace Linkton, the Gray Center's Research Director. Today I'm joined by Scalia law professor Donald J. Koshin. Don recently filed a report with the Florida legislature about the special treatment Disney has received related to its Disney World theme park. He's applied public choice thinking to evaluate Disney's relationship with the state, and is working on adapting his report into a law review article. You can find his report by clicking on the link in our show notes. Don, welcome to Gray Matters.
1: Thank you. Very glad to be here. Thanks for taking the time to talk through this important issue.
0: Well, your article is called Disney vs. Democracy, a Public Choice and Good Governance Analysis of Florida's Reedy Creek Improvement Act of 1967 and its resulting regime. What is that about, and what did the Reedy Creek Act do?
1: Sure. Well, thanks for having me on the program. I think that a lot of what is happening in Florida was not known for many years, or at least was um, uh, not worried about too much uh, because it seemed like uh, things were going well so the 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 paper is designed to present a history of the Reedy Creek Improvement Act the uh, the underlying reasons and lobbying efforts that led to its uh, the legislation passing um, as well as then the very special character of the act as an extraordinary piece of legislation giving extraordinary powers to a basically a private company to have its own private governance regime let me step back and take you to what was happening prior to the Reedy Creek Improvement Act the Disney uh, corporation was looking to establish a new theme park and so it, it already had its uh, its theme park out in Disneyland in California and it was locating uh, a new park that would have uh, you know an updated uh, version also they were looking principally on the east coast uh, to to uh, locate and uh, they wanted to and a lot of this is documented in in uh, various histories including a, an excellent book called married to the mouse by professor richard fogel songs uh, a lot of this history is there and and also uh, you know uh, cited in, in the report some other some other sources uh, but they were looking to uh relocate and the Part of it was that they wanted to avoid some of the problems that they saw with having to deal with the governance of California uh, and the underlying area in Anaheim. And um, so it was, let's not make that mistake again kind of approach. Um, And so Walt Disney was spearheading much of this and had a heavy hand in demanding that they use the full economic powers of Disney uh, to try and extract promises from any uh, city or state that was willing to bargain with them uh, for bringing Disney to the area, right? This is a city we, we hear about this with corporations all the time uh, in which a corporation will say, yes, I'll build my plant in your city, but what, what are you going to give me if I come to you? Because this other city uh, is offering me these perks. And so you get a competition. Between cities, uh, to basically, how much of their of their um, how much abuse do they actually want to uh, engage in in order to attract economic development? This is a this is a, a regular story um, uh, that we see happening, you know, with co- with corporate um, uh, uh, relocations all the time, and or and or new developments. What's special though is that, th- is that, uh, this wasn't just about giving some tax privileges or, or other things, but the act itself, um, is worth exploring in detail because the act, creates a structure that gives a private governance regime to Disney so back to the, what what they were seeking um, a couple things that that Disney had which were high demands were that they would get a kind of private governance regime that would give them uh, a say uh, an authority to um, dictate the outcomes of land use decisions and other other aspects of development and the second was that they wanted to be insulated from democratic accountability. They did not want a lot of pesky uh, individual voters to be able to up Uh, upend some of their plans or upend their uses of the authority that that was going to be given to them. And so from the very start, uh, in the background, Disney was trying to create a district somewhere where they would be the principal voter, the principal stakeholder uh, in the area, not just the dominant one, but almost the only one so that there were no countervailing democratic uh, forces which could prevent them from very flexibly and easily, uh, moving forward. Now that, um, those demands then were brought to uh, the legislature, and and they drafted the Reedy Creek Improvement Act. Disney drafted the Reedy Creek Improvement Act um, after uh, a couple of steps. Before that, they they first became a a special district, which was already available under the legislative law. Uh, they created the special district where Disney was going to locate because it really was a swamp before, so they needed to dredge and fill the area. So there was already authority in the Florida uh, uh, statutes to create a drainage, a special district for. Drainage. So that so the first thing that happened was that there was a Reedy Creek drainage district established, uh, but they soon realized that only gave them very special uh, you know particularized authority to deal with draining issues it didn't give them the broad land use authority that Disney really wanted um, and so the the statutes in existing Florida law were insufficient to give them the breadth of authority that uh, they they wanted to have and so they sought out the Reedy Creek Improvement Act um, uh, and and the Reedy Creek Improvement Act was drafted by Disney it was passed by the state legislature in 1967 and the environment in which it was passed was one in which the legislature was quite easily enamored with the promises that Disney was making to bring economic development to the area. And um, it was passed rather smoothly through the legislature with very little editing, um, and Disney got the package that it wanted. And this report explains some of the features of that act. It explains why those uh, those features deviate from uh, traditional norms of democratic governance, why um, those features, why why it was sold in the first place. Um, And I think maybe I'll I'll say a couple things about that, that, and then turn it turn it back to you. Um, one of the things, and we'll we'll uh, you know in, as we engage in the conversation, as you mentioned, this is an application of public choice to all of this. One of the reasons why it was so successful is because Disney's lobbying campaign not only promised a great economic uh, boom for uh, Central Florida, but it also um, made it sound like. In order for that to happen, uh, you needed to create the Reedy Creek Improvement Act and this kind of new governance regime. Uh, and it was supposed to be this modern, innovative, free market-oriented regime. Uh, and so there were these masks that were presented uh, quite effectively uh, by, by Disney. And the report goes through each of these as a way in which the public was and legislatures were sold by the very sophisticated campaign. Campaign, were sold on the idea of not only Disney uh, locating there, but also Disney getting the extraordinary uh, 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 private governance kind of authority that it would have. So the first was just this sort of, uh, well, it's in the public interest because it'll bring all this economic growth. Uh, Disney also had a campaign uh, pre, pre the act that was talking about futurism. And so they they, they mentioned there w- this this we will be able to bring to you this futuristic, innovative city, but the only way you can do do that is if you uh, if you give us the flexibility to change without those pesky barriers that governments kind sometimes create and that's when he shifted to this uh, entrepreneurial and and market oriented uh, mask so um, instead of saying what we'd really like is crony capitalism they, they said no 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 this is this is getting government out of the way. Uh, so that um, the market can flourish, so that development can flourish, so that private enterprise can flourish. But but that's very different. The market getting out of the way and allowing market forces to work in a competitive environment is very different than saying, get the government out of the way by giving the governance authority to us, uh, Disney, so that we can not only... um, uh, bring our operations there with little impediments uh, in terms of regulation, but so that we can also use that authority to hold off competitors, to give ourselves an advantage that no one else has, including in, in surrounding counties uh, that will decrease our overall all operating costs and, and and impose costs on competitors in, in the same space. But the mask was, this is entrepreneurial. This is government getting out of the way by by having private governance. And then... There was this mask of uh, uh, privatization and deregulation, as I already said, and that it was necessary for you needed to give them the efficiency and flexibility in order to do all of this. there was also a, a lobbying campaign that uh, in both in that futurism uh, and innovation space uh, that said, and we will eventually bring uh, uh, inhabitants into this area. We will create the, the cities of tomorrow, uh, the cities of the future. And um, that's where there was a what I what I said in the report was a bait without, without a switch um, uh, because they convinced the legislature, oh, this is necessary to give us all this flexible authority and the Constitution of the state of Florida required that they, if they were going to get this kind of authority in in a new special district, um, that they had to have inhabitants. They had to sell it as if we are eventually going to populate this area. Uh, but as I stated a, a few minutes ago, um, one of the conditions that Disney had in the in the back rooms was. We, will, we must never be beholden to inhabitants, We, you know, and so uh, they, they. there was never an intent to actually follow through on things like Epcot becoming the city of tomorrow in which it would have substantial inhabitants, and as soon as they were able to entrench the authority that Disney got in the 1967 act, they pretty quickly moved away from the ruse of having inhabitants and have, uh, you know, for the past 50 plus years done everything they could to prevent um, inhabitants coming in, in other words, voters coming in in a way that would uh, make it resemble a traditional um, uh, uh, local government. So I'll I'll, I'll sort of stop there. That kind of gives a a bit of an overview of of the act and um, some of the concerns in the act. I'm happy to go into some more details and and also uh, explain some of the law and economics aspects of the analysis.
0: I'd like to do all of that. And I have so many specific questions, but I think it might be useful if first I back up a little bit. You wrote really well, about how legislators and people thinking about public policy should approach these questions. I think it's worth quoting a little bit. You wrote that protecting the principles of limited government and the rule of law requires two things, you listed. Ensuring that government intervention in private affairs is limited to serving the public interest, and also maximizing the space for private ordering and market competition. And you've mentioned a little bit in your remarks the crony capitalist aspect of this Disney question, where did Florida go wrong along those two tracks?
1: Yeah. So um, the the idea that um, we want to ensure government interference in private affairs is limited to serving the public interest. Um, uh, Let's step back for a moment and um, think about political science in the nineteen, you know, the early part of the twentieth century. Um, there was this uh, n- now revealed to be naive belief that uh, political actors uh, would consistently act in the public interest, and we should assume that the products of legislation of regulation um, indeed were designed in the public interest, that people go into government for purposes of of, uh, generating things that will serve the public good. Uh, And so there should be an assumption that uh, what is generated through politics is, in fact, Uh, Good or intended to be uh, uh, for the public interest. Um, uh, Nobel Prize winner James Buchanan and and GMU uh, professor comes along and um, he wins in 1986 as a GMU professor uh, the Nobel Prize for describing all of this as politics without romance or politics with romance and and what he says is that we need to have some politics without romance right and so that's where public choice uh, comes in and and he wins the Nobel Prize for his groundbreaking Insights into public choice, which uh, in many ways to all of us today, I think, seems like seem more like common sense. But for a long time, uh, the orthodoxy in in uh, the analysis of governmental action was the opposite, as I just explained. And so, public choice uh, says that we should assume that interest groups uh, will try to access uh, the channels of power to um, get things from the government. Uh, At a um, uh, when when they can, you know, get special privileges from the government when they can do so at a lower cost than they would when there was uh, otherwise uh, when when they would otherwise have to uh, get the same thing in the market. And so uh, that's where we get this idea that interest groups will seek out um, special advantages from legislatures uh, if they can. And legislatures, uh, and so there's the demand, and legislators are the suppliers or regulators are the suppliers of these uh, bargains um, for the benefit of the interest groups. And so that's where we see uh, interest group theory or public choice theory coming into play to explain some of these outcomes. And there's a variety of reasons why... um, Uh, political officials, uh, can can be convinced to engage in these bargains, even when they're not doing so on on uh, a, a corrupt kind of level. Uh, oftentimes, it's because they are convinced that it is in the public interest. That's why all these masks that I explained before were a way to uh, put the wool over the eyes of the uh, of the legislator um, and make them think, "Oh, I'm doing something which is very good for my state," because the people who have the incentive to give me the information. Um, um, Uh, are giving me a lot of information that says it's good. uh, And so I'm now convinced it's good. And so I'm going to do this thing. Uh, uh, Whereas the people who are going to be harmed, the people with dispersed costs rather than those with concentrated benefits, um, have very little incentive to even investigate whether or not this thing is good for them or not. And certainly not a lot of incentive uh, to spend money to lobby against the the powerful uh, interest group that has a concentrated benefit. so, uh, if, for example, I'm going, Disney is going to come in and make billions of dollars if they get the district that they want. Over and they and fully anticipate they're going to make billions of dollars across a long spectrum if they can uh, get this kind of durable deal from the legislature. Um, you or I, as as uh, Central Florida citizens, um, are expected to bear, say, uh, five dollars a year in costs on this. Um, uh, we're willing. To to spend up to five dollars to combat this, they're willing to spend up to a billion ser- of dollars uh, to get the privilege. And uh, so, uh, th- because of concentrated benefits and dispersed costs, um, there's an there's an uh, an overwhelming influence on the part of those who uh, want to uh, obtain these kind of special favors, and and they have a great advantage in the political bargaining game. And uh, so, if we, you know if we want to protect the public interest and we understand this insight from public choice, and we understand that the general process is not going to produce the public interest, then we need to erect barriers um, to the production of legislation that increase the cost of legislation in a way that decreases its production, right? The the higher cost it is, the less you'll get of it. And so, if we truly want to, uh, as I said, ensure that government interference in private affairs is limited to serving the public interest, then we need to make sure there are, there are fewer Opportunities for these kinds of interest group capture of legislative and regulatory power that necessarily will um, uh, impose costs on others for the benefit of of the private interest group. Um, And, uh, so, uh, this, you know, when you, when you allow a, a government, uh, a a set of government powers to be captured by a private entity, then they are going to use those powers to maximize the profits of the private entity and not to, uh, indeed serve the public interest. And so that's where the real danger comes in this particular category. Um, uh, when I say uh, and we also need to ensure those actions are truly necessary and limited, uh, 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 and rec- and require public intervention, that's when we also should be just sort of skeptical of of how often uh, do we need to deviate uh, from uh, norms in order to um, uh, you know uh, alter regimes in a way that might give an interest group this kind of power, and very seldom is that actually justifiable, as much of the law and economics uh, literature will will reveal. Uh, when you do so, uh, then you force people back into the market. So if you increase the costs of legislation itself, you force people to compete in the market. And so instead of Disney having, say, a, 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 a um, access to these this private governance regime which decreases their overall operating costs, um, we would force them into the market in which they don't they have the same operating costs as any other competitor. And you and therefore you do in fact maximize the space for private competition um, and. And one of the things that um, I detail later in the report is we have this assumption that the reason why Disney or some have this assumption that the reason why Disney has thrived um, is and it is because um, it has been supported by the governance regimes that it's uh, that, that have been established. Um, that uh, it may very well be that. The reason why Disney survived is because of that, but we don't know that it's thrived. One, because it has not been subject to the same kind of market forces that uh, uh, most market participants are, uh, because of the way that it has special privileges over its land use and zoning and building codes and other things that it gets under the Reedy Creek Improvement Act that all the other people who want to come into the space for entertainment in Florida don't have. Uh, So their costs are lower. Their operating costs are necessarily lower because of the government privileges they get. Compared to everyone else who wants to locate and become a competitor th- to them in either the the theme park space or or the hotel space, because they've used this authority, uh, they've used their their extensive authority to build an entire hotel empire um, uh, in in the area. That's where you get sort of this creep uh, beyond their original mission uh, that they were given the authority for in the first place. So we don't see the forces when you when you are for- when you are faced with competitors, you are you are forced to improve the. The product that you offer to consumers so i would speculate that if disney had been in a competitive environment for the past 50 years we'd have a much better disney so if we if we really think disney's fantastic uh just think what it could be if it had to if it had to innovate and compete and improve even more than it currently does um on on a on a on a scale in addition, we don't know what might have replaced Disney if it had been. Maybe Disney wouldn't have survived because we would have had a level playing field in which some competitor could have come in and given consumers an even better product um, than, than what currently exists. Uh, so, um, you know, when you when you give special privileges to particular entities, you you do not create that space. You close off the space for for uh, uh, for market competition. And that's bad for uh, not just sort of some you know theoretical understanding of how markets should operate. It's bad for the for for the consumers of any product, including consumers of of the kind of uh, hospitality uh, services or entertainment services that Disney provides.
0: There's a couple directions I want to go hearing that. I want to drill down into the crony capitalism aspects of that, but I also want to get into the specific externalities that Disney's imposing on the people around them. Some people in our audience are traditional libertarians, so I'm hearing the Marodes crowd of the online libertarians saying, hey, wait, we want to maximize the amount of autonomy that these corporations have. And they're looking at Disney. One thing you mentioned in your report is that they have their own police force or they have private security instead, and that the police have to declare themselves whenever they come into the park and have to either use unmarked cars or park off-site. It doesn't look like the Detroit depicted in RoboCop, which had a similar kind of premise. And then I think you also mentioned that Disney has the authority to develop nuclear power. Have they done that? Is that something that they haven't?
1: It shows the breadth of it all.
0: Yeah. So is the problem just that the competitors didn't have the same privileges? and that everybody should have similar flexibility? Or mm-hmm. is that where the externalities come in? What are the costs that Disney is able to offload to the surrounding counties that they're not having to pay for because of this special treatment?
1: Yeah, so um, so there's kind of two questions there. So on, on the first is... Um, would it be better if just everyone got the same level of flexibility? Well, the flexibility is is really just the, the, the that's the narrative, that's the mask, that's the, th- those are the buzzwords that um, Disney claims it is. What it really means is we have access to be able to control without the typical level of scrutiny, insight, um, additional voters, you know, competing interests within and in competing uses of the same space, right? So, so it's not even it's not even just you know maybe the better thing would would be to for the entire area where Disney is to go back to being a swamp I mean uh, you know um, environmentally uh, so so we, d- we just don't have all these competing uses diversity of interests that uh, pluralism really is is a great thing um, and so you know you get static and stagnant um, anytime you are um, you are not challenged and so I, I think that that's um, that's a problem given the level of control um, there is also some optimal level of regulation um, and and we don't you know we don't know what that is uh, so I so I don't think the story is that um, necessarily uh, some of the relaxation of standards shouldn't be across the board and and there should be less land use regulation or uh, maybe more flexible building codes for everyone I, I that, that may very well be the case but um, uh, but when you have barriers to entry into the space itself, we don't see whether or not that's beneficial to, to others and um, in, 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 in the surrounding counties. Um,
0: and so- not only that, you mentioned that when the state passed future land use restrictions and other regulations they didn't apply to disney but they did apply it to other people
1: right and that that's part of what i was going to get to in your second point but let me get let me point uh, say something about that directly so there is this perpetuity uh, provision in the reedy creek improvement act uh which says that um the that that they shall have control over their own land use, building codes, zoning, et cetera, um, that they may change it over time uh, and that um, any future laws passed by the legislature are will not be uh, applied. Um, so they have an insulation from this. Now, um, you know, I, I, make, I make a point to be uh, honest in the report that the legislature, of course, could uh, say in some new... Um, in, in some new piece of legislation, well, we're rescinding that thing we did in the Re- Reedy Creek Improvement Act, or we're making an exception to the Reedy Creek Improvement Act, this does apply to Reedy Creek. Of course, that, that's going to require a lot of political courage and political capital to do so. And, and so once they got it embedded in there, it's had staying power, and the legislature hasn't done that. Um, uh, and so the perpetuity clause obviously can't bind a future legislature, but what it says is that we ha- we will now have an assumption that unless the legislature does does that really, really hard thing, um, that it passes you know, a law which not only applies a new regulatory authority throughout the state, but also says, and it now is going to change what we did in the Reedy Creek Improvement Act, um, uh, that, that's really hard to do. And so it, it gives a lot of durability to Disney in that in that space. And, and what that has meant is that changes in the Florida law, which has actually increased regulation uh, or changed the regulatory structure in every other part of the area, including the surrounding counties has not applied to reedy creek um one of those uh you know issues then becomes uh the issue of whether or not um uh, Disney is responsible for the impacts that they're imposing upon other uh, areas. And counties are, um, right? So it's, if a county, uh, if something happened in one county, a development in one county was imposing costs on another county, then those impacts uh, fees could be assessed. And, and there would be um, the, the need for uh, that kind of regulation. So so th- there, there these are things which Disney has been able to keep its cost low because it's not subject to those changes. Um, What it's also been able to do is to offload as externalities here, um, a lot of the cost of its actions. So to get to the second part of your question, um, uh, people have to work in Disney. People have to, if people are going to work in Disney, they have to live uh, somewhere. Um, if they're going to uh, work in Disney, they're going to have to um, use social services somewhere. They're going to have to use roads to get to Disney, which are not all going to be in, inside of Reedy Creek. Um, so as Disney grew, instead of allowing people to live inside the district, Disney has had a concentrated campaign to, again, have an absence of voters, which was Walt Disney's plan from the start, um, and and a demand that you know, over time, you see a very consistent and effective uh, campaign to prevent the the creation of inhabitants Anywhere in, in the district, um, so there there are a few in the paper cities as they are sometimes called, and but the you know it's it's only a few dozen in one city and and you know a few dozen in the other city uh, that really are all beholden to Disney anyway, um, and so they aren't really a check on authority, uh, but t- throughout the rest, when new pockets of populations have. Possibly been able to be brought into the district. They've been de-annexed, which is uh, a, a process in Florida, which can carve out and say, "Okay, that's no longer part of the district." So Celebration, for example, which is this um, uh, city that Disney created, as soon as they created the c- city of Celebration, they got it de-annexed, so that anyone who moved in there would not be a voting member uh, to vote for the uh, to, to vote in the in Reedy Creek. Um, but I've gone a, a bit off on a tangent. So back, back to the issue of, um, uh, of the externalities. So as a result of keeping people, keeping residential opportunities out of Reedy Creek, uh, the Reedy Creek Improvement District, now the Central Florida Tourism Oversight District, um, uh, they've been able, they've, they've pushed everyone out or required that people live outside the city. Now, the other thing that, um, uh, is true about the general working population at disney is uh that disney pays very low wages and so these are very low wage workers um these are not and and so the demands for social services are higher um the cost of housing is a is a much bigger impediment uh to them uh so as housing costs go up uh it's it creates high levels of difficulty for people who aren't making very much money. Um, And so all those costs get shifted out to the surrounding counties where the people live um, in terms of finding adequate housing, which is a real problem in this area, um, and affordable housing. And, uh, And then the social services, the Fire departments, the police departments, the, um, uh, the schools that all have to be built for Disney's employees don't get built in the district and go, don't get charged to, to Disney. Now. Disney is a taxpayer in the district, but they're not a taxpayer in these other counties. Uh, and so they are not contributing to this, to the base. And so all of the taxpayers have to, in the other surrounding counties, ha- are required to pay for Disney's employees precisely because Disney has been able to carve out uh, this area in which it, It's theme park is, but no population exists. Um, uh, So that's a huge externality. And then there's the drain, of course, on the roads to get into work. Um, So as Disney expands and as Disney has, you know, not just the tourists are coming into uh, the area. Um, uh, through the other counties, but also the people who are driving through to get to their w- work have to use the roads in the surrounding areas, and the and that's a huge strain on on the on the public infrastructure, uh, which again also is not borne by what. Is sometimes called the voter. Um, when I was, it was interesting when I was talking to folks, and uh, you know, uh, in the district, Disney is sometimes referred to as the voter um, or as uh, you know, the the basic constituent. Um, uh, that single constituent is is not responsible for these extraterritorial effects, and um, and and certainly not to the degree that they otherwise would be if they were located anywhere other than in the district.
0: You wrote about the temptation to shift costs to others, and so Mm -hmm. when we're talking about the externalities related to Disney's situation, is that the main reason to oppose the internalization of all private and public functions within one body, or is that just a tendency that public choice economics has identified?
1: Uh, it is it is certainly a um, a problem that we are dispersing costs um, and concentrating benefits, and therefore, you know, there there is this uh, abusive uh, imposition of costs on on individuals who simply do not have the access to the power, do not have the information uh, necessary, and it would just be too costly to get the information in the first place to even know how to protect their own interests. And so, anytime that you are uh, creating these accesses to special privileges and allow for rent seeking, so a, an opportunity for someone to get something cheaper through the government than they could otherwise get in the marketplace, and as a re- and through the process also concentrating benefits on themselves and dispersing costs on individuals who are not uh, going to oppose it, um, is is always problematic for the purpose of just that redistributive nature of it. Uh, but I think that um, independent of that, uh, there is a real risk that um, anyone with access to coercive power um, using it for private gain will use it in an abusive way that will that will gradually um, erode important limitations on the exercises of coercive power. And so from an individual freedom standpoint, we should always be concerned about um, any uh, level of governance, especially that level of governance, which doesn't have traditional checks on it um, that make production of legislation hard, ma- that make production of legislation costly, that make uh, production of legislation run through a lot of hoops. Um, and so um, the the we, we are likely to get a lot of bad rules. So it's not just about the distribution aspects, but we are also likely to get a lot of bad, just objectively bad rules because they will be designed not because they have been vetted through traditional uh, processes, not because they've they've str- made it through the the high hurdles that normal legislation has to go through, the kinds of checks that normal legislation has to go through um, and uh and, and so we, we make legislation hard, we make governing hard for a reason, and when you relax those standards plus give them to a private uh private group it's it's you know ripe for abuse and you quoted
0: the federalist papers to that extent saying that it would be better to block bad laws than to pass good ones in some cases and then you quoted i think it was madison in another paper that said having too many laws itself is a problem
1: absolutely like and, and 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 you know this is where it runs entirely contrary to some of uh walt disney's mask that that was provided as well as some people's intuitions and that is that if that you know what what if you read a bunch of quotes from uh, Walt himself and, and his team in the 1960s when they were trying to accomplish this, it, they, they kept saying, this is about efficiency. This is about, you know, this is good. Appe- they were appealing to these market sensibilities, to these tendencies uh, that, you know, the only way that we can be entrepreneurial is if we uh, have this level of flexibility and it will be more efficient. Um, and, and that's a very dangerous narrative. Uh, to um, to make as a reason for altering and, or I should say, relaxing traditional. Barriers to the creation of coercive rules, um, uh, uh, because when we're talking about efficiency, it's it's it, what we what we mean in the market sense is that we are encouraged we are incentivizing people to find the lowest cost way to do things because they will be subject to competitive pressures, and if they don't uh, if they you know if they don't make the, their operations more efficient, uh, and someone else comes along and can do something in a more efficient and lower cost way, they're going to outcompete, and you are going to not survive. And so we need to create. The conditions by which innovation um, and entrepreneurial uh, spirit can uh, lead to market innovation, but um, uh, ways or market efficiencies. Uh, but that doesn't mean cr- making it easy to make laws, which is really uh, what. Uh, Disney was saying they were saying make it easy for us to decide which laws to make and which laws not to make um, rather than saying uh, let us operate free of you know let's let's have a debate over what the best laws are and how those constraints can be applied um, so yes there's there's a real risk that um, uh, that this efficiency mask will uh, makes it sound like things should be flexible. There's also some really strange language that was being employed. I, I, I see it a lot in this period. Uh, you, you see it in some propaganda from uh, you know, socialist countries and communist countries about um, uh, the, the constant state of becoming. Um, it was they, you know, a direct quote from uh, that's that's in the Fogel Song book, but from some of the um, advocates, uh, some of the Disney lobbyists was that, well, we need to be. And I think Disney Walt may have even said this in his uh, famous sort of pitch uh, that he that he did to a bunch of legislators um, that Disney. Plans to be in a constant state of becoming, and and we will, we you know in order for us to be uh, able to constantly evolve, we need to have the flexibility that our rules will evolve. And if we have to go through the normal processes of government governance, um, it will stymie our, our our constant state of becoming. And this is the idea that you never actually get to any place; you are always in the state of becoming, and we will always be in a state of becoming. So we need to perpetually have uh, these these. These rules. That's also what led to sort of the perpetuity clause, because we need to be in a state of becoming. We can't possibly be subject to, uh, you know, these these uh, rules imposed by the state legislature in the future. And it's a very eerie propaganda that was being put out there um, to to justify in in market like linguistics, uh, about efficiency, uh, the, the granting of, of coercive powers to a private entity. Um, so, uh, I think that answers it, but again, yes, the founders clearly understood that legislation was meant to be hard. Uh, the constitutional constraints for legislation in this, in the federal government, as well as in state constitutions requiring things like bicameralism and presentment by having diverse electorates, uh, by having, um, all these kinds of choke points, um, uh, uh, and and or veto points, and I, I borrow those uh, from from some other authors who've worked on this area of separation of powers. Um, these choke points or veto points are are designed to make it costly to get legislation. And that gets us back to something we talked about before is that it's intentionally costly um, in order to shift more people to try and get the things that they want from the market rather than to try to go to the government to get special advantages. So if you make legislation really costly, then you decrease the incentives to rent-seek and you decrease the incentives to abuse governmental power for private gain. And, And once you start relaxing those constraints and make governance cheaper um, to get. Uh, once you start relaxing it and making it um, less hard uh, to produce things in your favor, then you, you the costs of getting legislation um, are lower, and therefore you're going to have more demand to get legislation rather than uh, trying to innovate within the marketplace.
0: Your discussion of the state of becoming and the I won't say new Soviet man, but that kind of concept that sounds like Walt Disney had in mind parallels that Woodrow Wilson progressive era critique of American government. I know this is happening in the 60s so much later, but that we need an organic form of government to match the living constitution or whatever, these familiar arguments. But that
1: they' they're familiar they're, they're they're convenient right they're they're very mm-hmm. convenient uh, because um it, it it leaves no objective standard against which you can judge the the exercise of governmental authority
0: and that brings back to mind so okay we have no standard then it has to be rooted in some kind of accountability which i wanted to drill down a little bit as we're coming towards the end disney promised that he was going to build these futurist communities they were going to be populated and they were going to have better lives ostensibly than other people in Florida. He got around that somehow, and we can go into those details if you want, but Florida had to have noticed that he didn't hold up his end of the bargain. Why did that not trigger some kind of sanction, or how does that work? Why was he able to make promises that he wasn't held accountable for?
1: Yeah, the I mean, one reason is because it was not—it's not the kind of contract that you can actually enforce like you would through a private contract, in which okay, well, we're going to give you this, but you agree to perform here, and if you don't, then we can sue you. There is no way to, uh, you know, this was a a. Um, uh, legislation granted to Disney in anticipation that Disney would follow through on its promises, but uh, the failure to follow through on its promises have no enforcement mechanism when you when you're dealing with a legislative bargain. And so, even if you were to presume that yes, this would have been a great bargain if we'd only gotten that, and I, I don't I don't do that. I, I specifically um, state that even if Disney had followed through on its promises, this still would have been a bad decision from a governance standpoint. It still would have been a dangerous decision, uh, you know, dangerous act um, in terms of the way that it shifted authority to, uh, extraordinary authority to a private entity, um, and wouldn't have been justified even, uh, had the gains been realized. But, um, let's assume for a moment that, that you would be happier if, if they, if they had been, um, there's, there's just no way in a legislative bargain of this sort to, um, have that enforcement. And I think that, um, uh, you know, Disney out, outplayed the legislature here in many ways it was mu- it was very it was a very very sophisticated lobbying operation and they knew from the start that they were not going to build the cities but they they said it anyway um and uh they knew that they couldn't be held to task for that i think what they also knew was that their other mask or their narrative would be very powerful as well and that is that you don't want to lose us um and so once they became embedded um then it's very easy to uh play a narrative that says, well, if you take this away from us, you, you, you central Florida will lose Disney and therefore you will lose all the great economic gains that you've, that we have given you. Um, uh, it's easier to see the gains than to see the costs as well. Right. So, um, uh, and, and so it, it created a, a level of path dependency in which the enforcement of the bargain, even if there were a means to enforce it through say taking away their perpetuity clause or other sort of punishments that you might want to impose for not doing it, uh, that um, uh, that those have been portrayed as too costly, um, that um, what's good for Central Florida is good for Disney and, and what's bad for Disney is bad for Central Florida. And so the optics of, of taking sort of those uh, uh, enforcement measures um, are skewed. And I think that that's, that's likely what... Um, Disney anticipated that once they got the act, they could then say, um, the act will be durable because, uh, it is, we will be able to convince the public and convince the legislature that, um, we are indispensable. Uh, uh and, and I think they've been very good at that campaign over the years. And it's, it's, it's harder to see what might have been, right? You, you, the, 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 the unknown unknowns. Uh, um, you know what would what would Central Florida look like if this if the Reedy Creek Act had never been there? Would it? It's harder to sell the idea that oh, it could have been much better, or it could be much better if we just take this away and 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 have competition. Um, so. Uh, the, 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 way in which politics works is because of the, the perceptions, optics and narratives that uh, are effective and, and the ones that are harder to explain, um, often lose out. And, um, so I think ultimately, uh, uh, part of it is just, they, they decided at this point, we've got Disney, we've got this, there's, you know, what, what benefit do we really get out of trying to force them to live up to that bargain?
0: That makes sense. And I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't ask you an administrative law question next as we're coming to the end. So you wrote that part of the 1967 Act empowered Disney to experiment in the fields of recreation and community living as determined by the board. Now that seems to be in tension with Florida's state version of the non-delegation doctrine, definitely the federal version, at least traditionally. How was that reconciled or had that ever been challenged?
1: Uh, i I absolutely agree with you it, it creates um, really no um, intelligible principle upon which to determine what um, what authority it has to shift away uh, the legislature basically gave it governance authority without much guidance and note, note as we talked about before um, it also said and to the extent that we have more particularized legislation in the future you don't have to abide by it in the in these spe- specific categories I mean uh, not not every every state law is exempt but land use and zoning and building codes and other things um uh are and so um uh that that's highly problematic from a non-delegation standpoint i um i don't know of any serious challenge that's been made to it um i could be wrong that there has been but um uh but i think it's it, it it um It is it is another one of those very extraordinary aspects of this legislation that has received very little attention um, and has all the um, all the problems that we know are associated with excessive delegations of authority uh, without uh, the ability to uh, evaluate whether or not they are acting consistent with any standards granted by the legislature or whether or not this is uh, simply, um, you know, giving uh, uh, full reign to to a, a what what is essentially a self sustaining government unit uh, within the state that is not unlike um, what any other uh, district in the state gets. Um, and and that there there is a uh, you know there there's some confusion sometimes oh there Florida has lots of special districts for example uh, but um, the one thing that I encourage everyone to do is go go look side by side the Reedy Creek Improvement district is not a special district if, if you look at the special dist- other things that are called special districts Th- there are problems with the other special districts as well including from delegation standpoint including from um uh, other governance for other governance reasons. but they're they're contained by the fact that special district for say uh, drainage or a special district for taxing authority or a special district for housing, those have very particularized limited mandates um, and particularized uh, um, subject matter jurisdiction, um, not the general kind of jurisdiction that the Reedy Creek Improvement District has, not the kind of general jurisdiction combined with these Insulating features like won't be subject to future state laws on land use, won't be, and we can experiment. Um, in order to experiment, we we have the ability to change our laws and not be subject to. Uh, and we, by the way, we're also not subject to those future laws of, of the legislature. So it's really, it's it's not like any other special district in the um, in the state, and it's really not like what we you know what um, uh, land use uh, authorities call special districts in in most of the country. This is um uh, a, a, a true example of Interest group um, theory in action. Um, uh, It is. I I encourage everyone who works in the area of public choice to sort of look at this as a as an as an example of um, here is everything we've been talking about proven um, on steroids. Um, And um, and then then the question really does become, and I think we've you know some of it we're still scratching our heads at. Um, after this hour and i'm certainly scratching my head at um after um you know working on this for for several months is um how why and um you know what can be done about it because um we, we we can kind of understand the how and the why um just because it was predictable it was predictable from a public choice standpoint that it would get this way but but um but I think that even those things that public choice scholars predict would happen, we don't we don't assume that they'll be capable of happening at this scale uh, within our, our system of governance, and we don't expect that they would be capable of happening without a little bit greater exposure than uh, than than this deal has gotten over the past fifty years.
0: And that was going to be my next question. If public choice has a theory of. What happens from now? If people are reading your report, what are you hoping they take away from this? Not necessarily just as a cautionary tale, but are there any insights for what you would do when you find yourself as a state in this situation? What would be your next step?
1: I think part of it is the cautionary tale, so states approaching this should uh, approach it with a high d- degree of skepticism not be not be um fooled by some of the the lobbying campaigns that otherwise would occur um that the that the checks within the state, including citizens and other groups and competitors within the state, would also um uh realize uh have some of the tools necessary to uh, make the arguments as to why this, these um, are really just interest group bargains that are bad for uh, the state, bad for the citizens, bad for the voters. Um, uh, But I also, what I, for, for uh, the central Florida tourism oversight district itself and for the state of Florida, what I think it does is, is it overcomes some of the information barriers, right? So I, one of the reasons why this, why these, why this did happen and why things like this can happen is because of information asymmetries. And that is that um, the people who have the ability to gain through these processes know a whole lot about how they're going to gain and why they're going to gain and that they want to gain. And and that's why they spend money to lobby to get these kinds of deals, right? That's why there's a huge investment in getting the production of legislation for private gain. Um, the people who are going to be harmed um, uh, don't necessarily know they're going to be harmed. They're also going to, and so uh, uh, they they have little information from the start. Um, we don't, I don't know what's going around me here in Arlington. I mean, there's all kinds of development around. I'm not sure, did they get a tax break down the street or other things? And then am I going to spend time and money to go investigate um, all of it? Um, even if I did know. So first is five, the inf- the the expense to find out when you're when you're being harmed. Then there's once you're being harmed, is it worth it for me to actually spend five dollars to avoid two dollars uh, in in harm? Right. So I, I'm not going to spend five dollars to avoid to, uh, avoid a two dollar tax. And so um, the the I, I just simply don't uh, spend the money to even find out how how much I'm going to be harmed. And even if I found out how much I was going to be harmed, it, still the, the the economics of it all might not make sense for me to actually go lobby against this thing, especially when um, it's difficult to collect all the people together and the collective action problems come into play. Um, but what can happen is when, when, when there's exposure, right? Sunlight is the best disinfectant, kind of idea. When there's exposure, um, like uh, you know, I think this report contributes to, then you've you've decreased the information cost for all the people affected. And so, um, going forward, you can't say that the state legislature is blind to what's happening. You can't say that they, um, the, the mask is, is far less effective when, when the information is available. So it's when the information is not available or there aren't sort of these, these, um, investigations into, uh, these kinds of effects that, that make, um, uh, the rent seeking work. Um, when information is freely available, it's much harder to to convince the legislatures that what they're doing is actually in the public interest. Uh, when when um, there's a clear uh, uh, revelation of the private, the very very private gain and private interest nature of the deal that they're about to strike, and that itself is is a huge uh, force checking things. And so what I would expect to get back to your question, um, for, for Florida is that this kind of investigation, this kind of discussion, uh, makes it harder for these kinds of deals to continue. Um, and, and it, and it makes it harder for new deals to happen because people, um, have, the story of the past as a as a cautionary tale for when they're confronted with a similar situation in the future
0: and your report goes into great detail about all the aspects of why that would be the case and i encourage everybody listening to go and read it it's linked in our show notes i just have one last question is there anything else that we haven't already discussed that people interested in the separation of powers and regulatory policy more generally might get out of your paper
1: I, I would hope that, uh, you know, there, there's a fair amount in the paper about how do we establish, you know, wh- what are the standards for good governance? We've talked about a few of those today, but I think that um, a lot of them are about the the control of decisions at the democratically accountable level, which themselves are not, that's not going to guarantee that you're going to have good standards, but when you start devolving it down to uh, particular agencies or particular districts, uh, you start making them less accountable and, um, or if you do also increase and make the standards, so they're less accountable, then you should expect to, to, um, Get a production of regulation and legislation that is that is suboptimal, and um, uh, so we need to be very careful about that. I think the last thing is that um, single purpose agencies or single purpose districts um, are subject to capture. So it's a it's sort of a subfield uh, that you know a precursor in some ways to public choice. Some, in some ways, sort of a, a corollary to it, and that is the idea that. Um, any agency uh, that has only a, only one constituent or a dominant constituent, including an administrative agency, uh, is likely to start creating rules that benefit that particular uh, individual, that they're going to be captured by. And there's all kinds of reasons, repeat player reasons, um, uh, perpetuation reasons, and other things that make that true. Um, so we need to be uh, careful to study administrative agencies that are subject to capture as a result of being limited purpose agencies. Um, and what we see here is that when we have, um, when we have governing units that also have a dominant stakeholder, uh, that, that that also has special privileges embedded in law, that special district is likely to, um, serve the, the, the dominant, um, private entity rather than, being guided by even e- even if they do have uh, restrictions in their mandate that are designed to uh, uh, restrict their regulatory authority only to things that are in the public good or the public interest, they are likely to uh, gravitate towards serving the private gain at the expense of the public interest. Precisely because they don't have uh, they're, they don't have a diverse set of people interested in what they're doing.
0: And we could spend another hour just talking about capture theory and all of the ways that explains many things on the state and federal level. But thank you so much for sharing this report with us. I hope everyone will go read it. And thanks for being a guest on Gray Matters.
1: Great. Thank you, Jason. Thank you to the Gray Center for hosting me. Have a wonderful day. This has been an episode of Gray Matters. If you enjoyed this discussion,
0: check out all of our episodes on our website at administrativestate.gmu.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at AdLawCenter.